ask you a question. How do you feel about doctrine? Doctrine's a word that's very much fallen out of vogue these days, especially as it relates to churches. Most people, even many people sitting in churches, would say that doctrine doesn't really matter. And if a church is concerned about doctrine, well, the church is being doctrinaire. In other words, it's being dogmatic, it's being rigid, it's being intolerant of other people's views. But for some reason, this attitude uh, toward doctrine is only applied to churches, not to other groups and other organizations who are themselves dogmatic about their doctrine. For instance, let's pretend for the moment that I am vegan. Now, if you know me, you know that that requires a wild imagination because there's almost no vegetables that I like. But let's stretch our imaginations as wide as we can for the moment and imagine that I am an official card-carrying member of the vegan society. And let's say that as an official card-carrying member of the vegan society, that one day I walk into a, con- a, 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 a convention of vegans wearing a leather jacket and eating a Big Mac and fries. Would you? <laughs> there you go. Somebody after my own heart. Would you expect them to revoke my membership? Well, of course you would, because it violates their doctrine. Here's their doctrine. Excluding all forms of animal exploitation and cruelty, be it for food, clothing, or any other purpose. Now, that's a doctrine, you see. Let's say that I was a board member of, say, uh, the Center for a Better South. And by the way, there is such a thing as the Center for a Better South. And let's say that as a board member, I walk into one of our meetings and I say, yeah, listen, you know what? I'm kind of sick of the South. I'm moving north, I'm moving to New York. What would they do? They might be very nice about it, but I think they would ask me to step off their board. Would, you, would they not? Because it's tough to work for a better South if you're sick of the South and don't even live in the South. My point is that every organization, even those who think of themselves as uniquely tolerant of other people's opinions and beliefs, every organization has a doctrine, a set of ideas or beliefs that define the organization and why it exists. And if the organization is going to remain true to itself and to its cause, they have to adhere to the doctrine. Doctrine matters. Matters in every organization, including churches. And I mention this because the critical issue in the next letter that we're going to look at in our series from Revelation chapters 2 and 3 has to do with what is being taught in that church, a church's doctrine. Turn in your Bible with me this morning, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. We've been in a series, if you're new to City Church, uh, the series has been called Seven Letters. And these are seven letters that Jesus dictates to the Apostle John to be sent to seven specific first century churches in order to encourage them to stay steadfast in the midst of persecution and opposition that they were experiencing for their faith in Christ under the cruel hand of the Roman Emperor Domitian. Now, each of these letters applies to every church throughout history, including city churches. And so we've been using these letters to evaluate ourselves here as a church at the beginning of 2019. Now, the letter that we're going to look at today is addressed to a church in a city called Pergamum. Pergamum was about 20 miles inland from the church we looked at last week, a church in Smyrna. It's also one of the most prominent cities of Asia, though, as you will see, prominence really doesn't impress Jesus whatsoever. Let's read this letter, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write... These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, I'm going to come back to that description of what that means 
in a few minutes, but let's read on for now. Verse 13, he says, I know where you live, uh, where Satan has his throne. Now, that is, that's quite a referendum on a city. Now, why, does, why does Jesus say this about Pergamum, that it is where Satan has his throne? Well, Pergamum was a very beautiful city, but it was also the darkest, eeriest city in the whole of the Roman Empire, in that it was rampant with satanic activity uh, in the form of the worship of false gods. They had three temples that were dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. There was another one for the goddess Athena. And there was also there the, what was called the great altar of Zeus, uh, the king of the Greek gods, which sat on a hillside overlooking the city with a 40-foot high throne for Zeus. Now, any or all of those could be the reasons that Jesus describes Pergamum as the place where Satan has his throne. Can you imagine what it must have been like to have been a, to have been a Christian living in a city that Jesus describes as so evil, evil that it is where Satan has his throne? Well, you get a sense of that as we read on. Let me just mention before we read on that, again, that the rest of this letter follows the structure that I've shown you in previous weeks for these letters. There's a commendation. There's a complaint. uh, There's a correction that Jesus offers to correct the complaint. And then Jesus always ends with a comfort of some kind. So let's let's look at the rest of this letter uh, throughout that grid. First, let's look at the commendation that Jesus gives these people. Verse 13, he says, I know where you live. Uh, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. And again, he says, where Satan lives. I think it's tempting, no matter what kind of suffering that we go through, to wonder, does Jesus know uh, what I'm going through? Does he, does he know the suffering that I'm experiencing? Does he care about what I'm going through, or is he consumed with bigger issues? I think we wonder that no matter what kind of suffering we're going through, and especially perhaps if we're going through some kind of persecution for our faith. I said this earlier in the series, but you need to understand, I think it's important to reiterate it throughout this series, that there is nothing in the world that is bigger or more important to Jesus than what is happening in and to his church and the people that are in his church. Nothing more important to Jesus in the whole world. And I said this earlier in the series, as the church goes, this is why Jesus is so concerned about his church. As the church goes, so goes the world. Say that with me. As the church goes, so goes the world. So if you are a part of his church, you can rest assured that Jesus knows intimately what you are going through, no matter what it is. Living in this city, Pergamon, must have been like living on the edge of a knife For these Christians. And Jesus wants them to know that he knows this, that he understands how difficult it must be. When Jesus says twice, by the way, that this is where Satan has his throne, I hope for your sake that what comes to your mind when you think of Satan is not a guy wearing a red costume with a couple of horns and a pitchfork. Because the biblical portrait of Satan is a spiritual being who is highly intelligent, immensely powerful, utterly unscrupulous, and has thousands of years of experience at destroying the people of God. And his whole purpose is to offer the world an alternative society in which there is no truth, no divine authority, 
A society in which Christ is ignored, his message suppressed, and Christians, at the very least, marginalized, at the very most, done away with. And this city, where this church is located, is where Jesus says Satan has his throne. Imagine how overwhelmed they must have felt. Just a very tiny minority in a city, dominated by evil, trying to hold on to their faith and to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not to mention... The pressure to renounce that Jesus is Lord and proclaim that Caesar is Lord, as anyone in the Roman Empire was expected to do. Imagine how frightening it must have been to them to hear that one of their own antipas had been martyred by the empire for refusing to renounce Jesus. I think it's difficult for us to imagine the pressure they felt. Frankly, because we don't experience this kind of intense persecution for our faith in Christ, though that is increasing here in America. But there are many people around the world who do understand it. There's an organization called Open Doors. It measures Christian persecution around the world. They reported, in, uh, they reported at the end of 2018 that about 215 million Christians were persecuted for their faith around the world. That represents one in every 12 Christians worldwide. And though they're nameless, and though they're faceless to us, Jesus knows every single one of them by name, just as he knew Antipas by name. For those who've been martyred like Antipas Antipas was, one day in the future, Jesus will avenge their blood. Jesus commends these people. He's quick to praise them. Whatever else is going on in the church, he wants them to know that he sees, that he knows, he understands how difficult it is to live in this city, and he is so proud of these people for remaining faithful, even through persecution, and even seeing Antipas, their friend, their brother in Christ, martyred, killed for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the commendation. There's something important that we learn in this letter. I think it's very important for you to see this morning. And it's that, uh, that outright persecution is only one of the strategies used, Jesus, uh, it's only one of the strategies Satan uses to suppress the gospel of Jesus Christ. Persecution is only one of the strategies. There's another one. I want to look at Jesus' complaint against this church, and you'll see this other one in what I'm talking about. Verse 14. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, which was what they were teaching was this doctrine of Balaam. I want to make this point. I'll explain it to you in just a moment. Here's the point. If Satan can't destroy Christian directly through persecution, he will subvert Christianity indirectly by corrupting it doctrinally. This is why doctrine is so important. If Satan can't destroy Christianity directly through persecution, he will subvert Christianity indirectly by corrupting it doctrinally. Go back to my illustration of the vegans a little while ago. If I were a vegan and I walked into a convention of vegans and I was eating a Big Mac and wearing a leather jacket and some fries and they didn't kick me out, what happens to their organization? What happens? Over time, this just begins to creep through the organization. It begins to spread. This this tolerance of something other than their doctrine and it begins to dilute 
the power, the strength of their organization. The same thing happens with the church, except the difference is that Satan is doing it in the context of the local church. He wants to subvert the church doctrinally because it dilutes the message of Jesus Christ. If the Nicolaitans sound familiar to you, it's because we read about them a couple of weeks ago in the letter of the church uh, at Ephesus. The substance of the false teaching of the Nicolaitans is what Jesus describes in verse 14 as the teaching of Balaam. Well, what is that? Well, what was the teaching of Balaam? Well, you can go back and you can read about Balaam later this afternoon if you want to in the Old Testament book of Numbers. But in short, let me just tell you the story. Balaam was a kind of, he was a false prophet and he was a, he was a sorcerer. There's a king named Moab, whose name is Balak. He's the one mentioned in this passage. Balak is terrified of the nation of Israel. Their reputation as the people of God and people who have the supernatural power of God behind them, their reputation has preceded them. And Balak is terrified that they're going to attack and conquer his nation, Moab. So he comes up with the idea that he's going to hire Balaam to do a little black magic on the nation of Israel. And the way this is going to work is he wanted Balaam to verbally curse the nation. Like thinking that somehow that would override God's blessing on the nation. And that they would be weakened. And then he could destroy them. Well, the plan backfired. It's actually very funny. Every time Balaam tried to speak, to verbalize a curse... Only blessings on Israel would come out because God grabbed a hold of his tongue. He tried seven times to curse Israel and only good things came out. It's actually quite funny. But since he couldn't directly curse them and destroy them, Balaam came up with an alternate plan to attack Israel indirectly. He told the king, listen to this, he told the king, send some sexy Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men and then invite them to worship their idols with them. And guess what? The plan worked to a T. The men were seduced. They intermarried with the Moabites. They began to worship their satanic false gods. And they corrupted the nation as a whole. Now, 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 now God, wasn't, God didn't uh, destroy the nation. He was still faithful to the nation and the promises that he made to them. But he did discipline them severely for it. Thousands of years later, the Nicolaitans are using the same strategy to subvert Christianity in Pergamum that Balaam was using to corrupt Israel thousands of years ago. In short, they were teaching this doctrine. And here's what it was. The doctrine that they were teaching that Jesus objects to is that it is possible to follow Christ and allow the culture to define your morals. That's what they were teaching. Like you can follow Christ and follow the morality of your culture. That's what they were teaching. You see, slowly but surely, Satan wanted to subvert this church by getting the people in this church to compromise themselves with the false gods and the practices of the worship of these gods which over time would dilute the message of the gospel. This must have been incredibly tempting teaching for these people. Pergamum was a very educated, very literate city. They had a library in it. With Listen to this. In this library, they had over 200,000 handwritten volumes in it. 
And so the, the, the intellectual elite in this city were fine with the morals of the culture. Surely they couldn't be wrong, someone in Pergamum might have thought. Someone in the church there might have thought. Surely the, 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 the intellectuals can't be wrong about their morals. And you can imagine, can't you, that the Nicolaitans must have said to the church in Pergamum, Come on, you guys, live a little. You're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. All of that stuff in the Old Testament about, about sex and false idols. Come on, that's old school. We're new school. Seriously, this isn't 1400 BC anymore. This is 95 AD. We're more sophisticated than they were, more educated, more advanced. Which, of course, sounds hysterical to us 2,000 years later that they thought they were so advanced. But you do realize, right, that the tendency of every generation is to absolutize the moment in which they live, to think that they are the pinnacle of the potential of humanity and understanding and sophistication about life. And yet by bringing up the doctrine of Balaam here, and the the fact that it was taught thousands of years ago, and now the Nicolaitans are doing it again, Jesus reminds us that while our technology may be more impressive and our scientific understanding may be more advanced, our ideas about life are not new. And in fact, they're as old as, well, as old as Satan has been trying to destroy people, God's people, and his message. When Jesus introduced himself in verse 12 as him who has the sharp, double-edged sword, he was using imagery that we find in other places in the book of Revelation that was designed to remind these people that Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who is the measure of what is right and wrong and who has the power and the authority to judge humanity. It would have served as a vivid reminder to the people in this church of the gravity of their sin and the urgency in heeding Jesus' words. Now look, how does this apply to City Church? Well, there's nobody here at City Church who's teaching the doctrine of Balaam. We're not teaching, we don't teach that you can follow Christ and allow the culture to define your morals. That's not what we're teaching. In fact, we teach just the opposite of that. But I do think it's fair to say that we're all tempted by that doctrine from time to time, aren't we? It would be so much easier to live that way so much easier to just go along with the culture. We wouldn't stand out nearly as much. Nobody would make fun of us for that. Nobody would call us dumb if we did. I think it's also fair to say that there are people here who are more than tempted by it. There are people here at City Church who do hold to that teaching that is still as prevalent today as it was in the first century, that you can follow Christ and allow the culture to define your morals. And because Jesus specifically addresses sexual immorality, let me ask you something. Where do you get your ideas about human sexuality? About what is true and what is false and what are good and healthy expressions of sexuality and what are wrong? and destructive expressions of sexuality. Do you get your ideas about that from the culture, or do you get it from the Bible? Do you get it from Netflix or the Bible? Where do you get it? And even more to the point, which one defines your practice of sexuality? And I want you to understand something. Jesus is speaking here from the perspective 
of um, eternity. In other words, he is outside of time and space. And still, the one who is outside of time and space says that the teaching about, the Bible's teaching about sexual immorality is as true today as it was a thousand years ago and will be as true a thousand years from now as it is today. It's timeless. He, he, he doesn't subscribe to the idea that, oh, you know, that's old school. That's old school. That's, we're more sophisticated today. He says, no, it's the same thing. And, and, and I will tell you something. God's word is very clear and very consistent on the subject of human sexuality, which makes perfect sense since he's the creator of sex. He should know what he intended for and what he didn't intend it for. And so Jesus is, Jesus is upset about this. He's angry about this. That someone in this church hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, this false doctrine. I want you to listen to this quote. I need to tell you on the front end, I have no idea who said it. I have no idea what I was reading or to whom I was listening when I came across it. I'm usually better at keeping those things together, but I blew it on this one. Nevertheless, whoever said this was very much on point. It's a little lengthy, but let me read it to you. Many years ago, this person says, I came to the realization that ideas drive the world. Karl Marx had some ideas about politics and the economy called communism that held millions under its sway for the better part of the 20th century. Over a billion Chinese are still under that ideology. Quite often, the man in the street, he says, is unaware of the philosophical underpinnings for his behavior, but he's still very much influenced by certain prevailing philosophies and ideas. For example, the teenager who dresses in black, mutilates his body, and listens constantly to music that exalts death, probably hasn't read any books on the philosophy of nihilism, but it controls his thought patterns and behavior. Millions of Americans could, Americans could not articulate the philosophy of postmodernism, but it governs their daily lives. Wrong ideas, he says, can have devastating effects. Now watch this. This is why I am committed to sound doctrine. Our ideas about God, man, sin, and salvation greatly affect the way we think, feel, act, and relate to one another. Sound doctrine produces healthy minds, hearts, and relationships. False doctrine results in wounded minds, hearts. Relationships. And again, I don't know who said it. I'm just quoting them as somebody really smart from somewhere. (laughs) False doctrine, he says, results in wounded minds, hearts, and relationships. For a moment, could I just ask you to do this kind of thought experiment with me? Could you just tally up in your mind, quickly, the wounds that you or someone that you know has experienced as a result of sexuality expressed in a way that is inconsistent with Christ's teaching. Tally up in your mind the wounds. The people that you know, or maybe you, have experienced as a result of sexuality inappropriately, illegitimately expressed. I'm not sure I could count as high as the wounds that I've seen in 30 years of ministry that come from illegitimately expressed sexuality, STDs, rape, unwanted pregnancies, abortion, sexual abuse, addiction to sex and pornography, broken hearts, misplaced identities, identities placed in, in, in sexuality, not in Christ, distrust of men, distrust of women, lack of sex in marriage, broken marriages from adultery. Those are just the most obvious examples. We learn from this passage that going back thousands of years to Balaam, 
that if Satan can't take God's people down directly, he will use sexual immorality and other moral compromises to subvert and to neutralize the people of God. And I want you to pay close attention to to what the timeless judge of the universe is saying here. He's saying you cannot follow Christ and allow the culture to define your morals. Can't do it. You must allow Christ, the revelation of whom is found in the Bible, to define your morality and how you live. Which is why, by the way, I'm teaching that class on why you can trust the Bible. Because if you're not convinced that you can trust the Bible, then you'll base your life on the culture and its values. And the woundedness that that will bring will be destructive to you and to the people around you. We've seen the commendation. We've seen the complaint. Now let's look at the correction. In light of the complaint, verse 16, Jesus says, Repent, therefore. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That word translated fight is actually a Greek word that means make war. (laughs) Wow. Make war. And you might wonder, wait, why does Jesus take this so seriously? Well, I think what you see here in the word repent is that Jesus takes compromise with the world's morals personally. It's a slap in his face. And here, here's, here's what I mean. Uh, I've probably said, to the staff here, uh, said this to the staff so many times recently that they're you know, tired of me saying it. But one of the themes of the Bible that has seized my attention of late is the goodness of God. Over and over, the Bible testifies to the goodness of God. In fact, the very purpose of creation was that God wanted to pour out His goodness on humanity. And and one of the ways, by the way, that His goodness is demonstrated to us is through giving us the Scriptures. The psalmist writes, he says, You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Over and over throughout the Bible, God says that the person who lives by his word, his commands, his decrees, will experience shalom, which means wholeness, peace, unity of being. Anybody who lives by his word, that's what he says. He says, you will increasingly experience this as you increasingly conform yourself to the scriptures, to my word. Jesus takes our compromise with the culture personally because it's a very public rejection from God's own people that declares to everyone watching that we don't believe that God is good. We believe that he's been holding out on us. And so we have to take matters into our own hands and define good and evil for ourselves. And so when Jesus says, repent, he's saying more than just change your behavior. He's saying, you need to change your thinking about God. You need to change your doctrine. You need to recognize that God is wholly committed, completely devoted to doing good on your behalf. He would never hold out on what is good for you. If sex with whomever, whenever was good for you, he would have said so. He wants good for you. If building your identity around your sexuality was good and helpful, he would have said, do that. Do that. It's good. If that were good, he wants good for you. 
But think about, just for a moment, think about all of the wounds that we listed a moment ago from sexual immorality. STDs, rape, abortion, broken hearts, sexual abuse. Think about all of those things. Any of those sound good? Of course not. They don't. God is so good that he wanted to spare us of all of that. So he told us what the right way and the wrong way to express sexuality is. What the right way and the wrong way to express sexuality is. The church is to be a beacon of God's goodness that says to the world, there's no better life than life lived under the kingship of Jesus, which is why Jesus takes this so personally. When his people step outside of his kingship in the pursuit of what they think is good, it's a slap in his face. It dilutes his message. And not only that, but it wounds the people in your relational world, which is why Jesus says that if the people in his church who hold to this teaching, don't repent quickly. He will judge them and he will do so quickly. He will make war with them. And look, let's just, let's be very uh, honest with each other here. If, if you've misused sexuality in some way, join the club. Most of us here have. Repent. Stop thinking that God isn't good and doesn't want good for you. Stop thinking you've got to define that for yourself because God's holding out on you. And bring your life and your sexuality into conformity with his goodness. Whatever steps that means that you have to take. Maybe if you have to give up on a boyfriend or a girlfriend who won't accept your conformity to Christ's standards of sexuality, do it. Do it. If it means be ostracized by your social circle because you're not on board with our culture's views on human sexuality and gender, whatever it takes. You can't follow Christ who so wants your good and allow a culture driven by Satan who wants your destruction and your demise to define your morals. You can't do that. Complaint and the correction. Finally, the comfort. And I don't know about you, but I need the comfort here. Verse 17. Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will give. And stop, stop, just for a moment. There it is. There it is. He will give. See, he's not withholding. It's not his nature to withhold. He's good. He wants to pour out on you his goodness, you see. He says, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll explain that in a moment. He says, I will also give. There it is again. He wants to give. He said, I'll also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, what is all of that about and how is that comforting? Well, in the Old Testament, manna was a food that God supernaturally provided the nation of Israel as they wandered around in the desert. And it was a testimony to God's faithfulness to do good by them, to sustain them simply by his provision. And once they arrived in the promised land, they took some of that manna and they put it inside the Ark of the Covenant, which is why Jesus refers to it as hidden manna. But this manna, please understand that this manna was always intended to be a picture of Jesus, who called himself later the the bread of life, the one who would give life and life abundant. 
So when Jesus says, I will give them hidden manna, he's referring to himself, and he's referring to his ability to give people true happiness shalom and, and shalom in this life, but he's also saying, look into the future, I'll give you even more in the next life. To him who overcomes, there's something way better in the next life than this world that you're experiencing. Well, what about this white stone with the new name? Well, the the best understanding of the white stone is that in the ancient world of athletics, victors were given a white stone as a symbol of their victory. And that white stone in the victor's hand became his ticket to the great feast of victors. And so the white stone identifies you as an overcomer, a victor, who has all of the rights to the new world that Christ will create and rule over in the future, and all of its lavish provision. You have the right to that, he says. I'll give you the white stone if you overcome. But more, more. He says that on that white stone is a new name. We see back, back in, the, uh, in, in the athletics of the ancient day, the victor would have his name engraved on the stone. And that would be his access to all the regalia that belonged to those who triumphed. It says the Lord is going to give you a new name and engrave it on that white stone. What does he mean by that? What's the significance of that? When my kids were young, as they were growing up, uh, I wanted to speak vision into their lives and I wanted to bless them uh, with my approval. And so every time I saw them doing something that demonstrated character, I would stop and I would point it out and I would say to them, I would say, son, you have what it takes to be a great man someday. And that's what Jesus is doing. And he says he's going to give you this new name. It's a way of saying, I'm so proud of you. I noticed. I saw all that you overcame. And this name marks you out as a victor. And one whom Christ loves and approves. And like Antipas, when you, whatever you go through, what you, whatever you endure for the name of Christ, it might be unknown to the rest of the world. You might be nameless and faceless to everyone else, but Christ is saying, I know you, I see you, and I'm proud of you, and I have a new name for you. All through the scriptures, you see this. When God is working with people, when he draws them into a relationship with himself, he often changes their name. Abram to Abraham. Saul to Paul, Simon to Peter. does it over and over again. And every time it, recognize, it, it, it symbolizes something new about this person and about what Jesus is going to do in them and through them. And he says, when I give you a new name, it's going to be one that highlights the fact that you overcame. And it's something special just between you and me, something intimate. It says, I know you. I bless you. I love you. I approve of you. That's the new name. City Church, 2019. Jesus would say to us, he'd say, I I commend you. There'd be many things I think he would commend City Church on. I think he would also say, there are people in your church There are people in this church that hold to the teaching of Balaam. And he would say to you, repent. And look at what he wants to do for you. Look at what he wants to give you. He would say, repent. 
Would you bow your heads with me? And Lord Jesus, this is such a difficult topic. Uh, We talk about sexual immorality. We're talking about something very personal. Talking about something that uh, everything in our culture tells us that we are uh, unsophisticated if we believe what the Bible says about it. And yet, Lord, we recognize and we affirm today that you are good and that, that, that you want to give us good and that if sex with whomever, whenever, if defining right and wrong sexually was, was, uh, was good for us, you would have said, go for it. But uh, you didn't because you are so good. And so, Lord, if there are people here today that might look inside and say, yeah, you know, I've abused sexuality. I've allowed the culture to define the way that I use sexuality, that I engage in sexuality. I pray that you would bring them this moment to a place of repentance. But I pray that that what would bring them to that place is a sense of your goodness. And I pray that as they repent, that as as they walk out today, that they would do so with a a new sense of how good you are. They wouldn't walk out with shame and guilt. That's not the point. But the point is that they would walk out with a new sense of how good you are and all that you have done for them and all that you want to do for them. And your goodness and mercy being expressed ultimately at the cross where you died on the cross for the sins of people like me and other people in this room who have no, we don't have any claim on you. We don't have any ability to say we deserve that. You just, you did it because you loved us and because you're good and merciful. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And it is in your name that we pray.